Please find in your copy of God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading together the larger context of what Pastor Mark will be preaching for us this morning. We'll actually begin in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 1. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is true. Sometimes, sometimes when you're you're preparing a sermon, it just starts to burn in you. And uh, that's certainly the case with this sermon this morning. And I hope that I can take what's in here and in here and make it clear. So let's pray together before we get started. Father, before we pray for this time and this sermon and this time under and in your word, we ask that you would especially extend great grace, healing grace, peace and joy to Ron Harrell in these days. Father, as he's passed through this significant bypass surgery and is on the other end now with some recovery, we ask that you would uphold him and strengthen him. And just as we just sang in that last hymn, that he might more of your salvation know and seek more earnestly your face. That this trial that has come to him and to Martha would be used to strengthen their hope to strengthen their joy, to strengthen their confidence in Christ and their trust in him. Father, for our time now, we ask for your mercy to extend for that posture that Jason just reminded us of, that grace and peace would be multiplied to us even through this sermon as we once again dive into 2 Peter. And that as I even speak and as we listen, your grace and your mercy would be being lavished upon us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I read this week in a biography 
that a faithful pastor, quote, has to warn and guide. He has to be negative as well as positive. And that's gonna, that encouraged me because that's sort of what I feel like I have to be a little bit today. Um, I have to warn and guide this morning because this passage warns and guides this morning. And I have to be negative as well as positive because this passage, while it contains great encouragement, it also contains great warning to us. And God's warning and God's encouragement are both means of grace to us. They are both um, inextricably linked with his purpose to multiply grace and peace. So his warnings are actually an expression of his love. So I think you will see that as we dive into 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11 this morning. You know, my son, Judson, has been recovering from, an, from some eye irritation. And those of you who have little kids or have had little kids know that some medicines that kid, kids take is very easy for them to take. It tastes like juice. It's, you know, tastes grape or cherry. But eye drops is another thing altogether. And uh, my son does not like eye drops. And uh, last night we're trying to, you know, He's, he lays there. I, I think I contribute to his distress more than anything because I'm like pinning him down to the couch and he's like, what's going to happen to me? But nonetheless, you know, getting your eye open and having this really thick drop dropped into it, it's just a little bit disconcerting and alarming. And we have to remind him, you know, this is for your good and just wait it out, but don't close your eye immediately. Let it kind of seek in and then so we're trying to comfort him in that whole process. But as I was doing that, I was thinking about the sermon. And that's exactly what we're getting ready to do this morning. We're, we're from God's word. I'm going to drop some truth drops into your soul. They're meant to be medicine. They're meant to be strengthening and healing. And they're essential to our spiritual growth and health. But sometimes when we hear them, they're a bit hard to hear. And they rattle our cage a little bit. And that's good, and that's what God intends. If you remember the context of this letter of where we've been so far, Peter begins in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting really at verse 2 and verse 3, talking to us about God's grace, the fact that everything that we need to be godly, that is to be like God, which is the purpose for which we were created and redeemed, has been provided to us, that when God calls us to be like him, he gives us all the resources that we need to be that way. He doesn't start with law coming to us and saying, do this. I want you to be this way. Rather, he comes to us with grace and he reminds us that he has purchased us, that his posture toward us is one of mercy and grace, that his power is available to us, that his promises are there to be believed. And his passion is in us by the Holy Spirit to produce in us the desires to fight our inward corruption. So several weeks ago in our first sermon in 2 Peter, I reminded us of that, that we can be godly because of God's grace. Last week, Jonathan walked us through chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and reminded us that in light of this, in light of God's grace, in light of his provision, we must now exercise responsibility and effort in pursuing the kind of life that God has, in his grace, provided for us. 
And it's that strange mixture that we see over and over in scripture of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, of God's action and our action, of God's initiative and our response. So this morning, Peter is continuing that train of thought. He's already talked about why we can be godly. And now he's going to come alongside in verses 8 through 11 and stress to us why we must be godly. In other words, in light of what God has done in Christ and the grace that we have received and the power that is made available to us through his promises and the exhortation to make every effort to pursue this, he says, now, let me give you the consequences or the results of either doing that or failing to do that. And that's what he's going to do this morning. He's going to give us some encouragements about what will happen to us as we do that, as we pursue godliness, as we make every effort, as we surrender ourselves to the gracious purposes of God, relying upon his power and spirit, and what will happen to us if we don't. So I've got five reasons this morning for why godliness is not optional. In other words, why godliness is necessary. So number one, godliness is necessary for fruitfulness and effectiveness in life. Godliness is necessary for fruitfulness and effectiveness in life. We see this in verse eight, where Peter writes, for if these qualities, now the qualities he's referring to there are the ones that Pastor Jonathan preached last week, verses five through seven, the qualities of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, all those virtues that, are, that reflect the character of Christ. He says to us, if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just notice for a second, Peter expects us to grow spiritually. That's clear, right? He expects these qualities to be ours, not just Jesus's, but ours. And he expects these qualities to be increasing or abounding. He doesn't expect us just to make a little progress, he expects us to make substantial progress. Now, of course, we know Christian growth, contrary to our American microwave fast food society, is a slow process. It's a slow process. Christian growth, like physical growth, doesn't happen overnight. Now, in some ways, you all remember back when you became a Christian that some things, especially if you had a somewhat decisive and radical conversion, Again, all, just, all conversions are radical and decisive, but you can remember certain habits just kind of dropping off and certain virtues kind of just being present by the fact that you're now born again, that you've been renewed. But then as you get into the Christian life, you realize there's more sin in your life than you ever realized and that the tug of that sin is greater than you realized. And even though you're free from its power and dominion, you're not free from its influence. And Christian growth becomes a difficult warfare. It's a battle. But nonetheless, having said all that, Peter says that nonetheless, we are expected because of God's power available to us and because we are called to make every effort, that these qualities can be increasing. We are to make continual progress. 
And if we do make continual progress, Peter says, this keeps us from being ineffective or unfruitful. Now, what does he mean by ineffective? That same word is used in Matthew 20 and is translated idleness. It's used, if you remember, in the parable of the laborers, where Jesus talks about those who are standing outside in the marketplace, not working, but they're being idle. That same word is used to describe those idle workers who stand around instead of working. They're ineffective. They're not producing anything. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's also used in James chapter 2, verse 20. Familiar verse to you all. Faith without works is ineffective. It's dead. It's worthless. It's useless. And so the idea here is that Peter says... These qualities increasing in our lives keep our lives from being wasted, from being ineffective. The second word is unfruitful. And of course, this word can also be translated barren. Matthew 13, 22, it's used in the parable of the soils. You remember where the, the seed is sown, but the cares of the world choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. It doesn't accomplish the purpose for which it's given. The word of God is intended to be received by us and bear fruit in our lives, but the worries, sometimes the cares of the world creep in and choke that choke it out. That's what Peter's saying here. It's unfruitful. The word is not accomplishing what it's intended to accomplish. The gospel is meant to come to us with power and change us and to set us on a trajectory of continual ongoing progress, growth, and change in our character. And he says, if we're not doing that, if we're not being proactive about pursuing these qualities and we're not increasing in our lives, then we are not accomplishing the purpose for which we are, have been redeemed. We're being ineffective and unfruitful. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, I have chosen you that you might bear fruit and fruit, that your fruit should remain. So fruitfulness is what we are called to do and be as Christians. The knowledge of Christ, that is the knowledge of the gospel, is intended to produce godliness. That's what Peter says here. It says, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Christ, of who he is and what he's done and what he's like, is meant to change us and make us effective and fruitful. So our growth in Christ-like character is key to a fruitful life. Therefore, we must make the pursuit of these virtues a top priority in our lives. We can't just resign ourselves to sub-Christian character. We can't resign ourselves to this far, that's good enough, no serious disrespectful sin in my life, no serious... No, we have to make warfare on our attitudes that get manifested in my life this morning when I wake up and... I get tempted to be nasty and irritable and impatient. I have to make warfare on those, not just the public things that people see and are obvious, but those inward character traits. We can't resign ourselves to that if we would be fruitful and effective. So that's the first reason. Who doesn't want to be fruitful and effective? I mean, who wants to say, basically, I just want to just waste my life you know, I don't want to have any significant impact for Christ. I don't want to have any significant, you know, that my life really mattered or counted. 
We can't do that apart from, or we can't have that apart from a pursuit of the qualities and an increasing pursuit of the qualities that Peter reminds us that we ought to have. So that's the first reason that godliness is necessary for fruitfulness in life. Second reason godliness is necessary is to avoid gospel amnesia. I tried to find ways to express this. It's a somewhat difficult reality, but I'll try to try to explain it. To, uh, godliness is necessary to avoid gospel amnesia. Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, Peter acknowledges that Christians can sometimes lack the qualities that they ought to have. He says in verse 8, the positive, if these things are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being fruitful and ineffective. And then in verse 9, he gives the negative. If these things are lacking, here's what has happened or may be happening. For whoever lacks these qualities is not making every effort to pursue these qualities, is not believing the gospel deeply enough to work this out in their lives. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Now, what does that refer to? Well, he's using a metaphor here. And those of you who know what nearsightedness is all about, I, I do, I'm nearsighted, means that you, you can't see things that are far off. You kind of just focus on what's right in front of you. You just, you're kind of blind to everything else. You're just, whatever's right in front of me, that's the big thing. That's what's happening. Whatever's right here, right now. And we forget the greater realities of the world. Namely, that we've been forgiven of our past sins. We forget eternity. We forget heaven and hell. We forget the cross. We forget the significance of being born again and raised from life to death and our call in this world to glorify God. Like it, what happens is if we don't pursue these qualities with intensity, with effort, it affects our perception of ourselves and our spiritual condition. Notice what he says. He says that they have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. That is, they've forgotten the point. They've forgotten the point of what the gospel is all about. Jesus came into the world to deliver his people from their sins. And these people are cavalier about that. They're not pursuing, by not pursuing godliness, a spiritual blindness has, can set in upon us where we actually no longer treasure the gospel or live in light of its reality. It just kind of lands on us and bounces off. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know if you're in this condition? How do you know? How do you know, and I, I would answer that first this way, do you lack those qualities? But you say, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I lack them. I mean, I care about them. I'm pursuing them. I, want, I fight against that. But how do I know if I'm what Peter's talking about here? If I'm nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that I was cleansed from my former sins? Let me ask you this question. How do you respond to this statement? You have been cleansed from your former sins. You 
have been cleansed from your former sins. You have been cleansed from your former sins. You have been cleansed from your former sins. You have been cleansed from your former sins. When I say that, does it thrill you? Does it remind you of the preciousness of what Christ did for you? Does it motivate you to want to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness? If so, you are not nearsighted and you are not blind. But if that statement, if you were to meditate on that reality, I have been cleansed from my former sins. All my sins are washed away, buried, gone, never to meet me again in the day of judgment because of the work of Christ on the cross for me. If that's ho-hum, beware, beware. It may, and here's what you say, I want to get that back. I want to get that back. It is kind of ho-hum right now. I want to get that back. Well, how do you get that back? Pursue godliness. Make war on your sin. Start to treat it the way God treated Jesus because of it. Let me say that again. Start treating your sin the way God treated it because Jesus took it. Hate it that much. Fight against it, war against it. And I will tell you this, you will have a renewed appreciation and love for the gospel. You, you will have a joy in Christ and a renewed sense of having your sins forgiven because it's, it's the way God has set it up is as we fight our sin and kill the very thing that killed Jesus, the joy and reality of that presses in on us and thrills us and motivates us and changes us. And so what Peter is saying here is, don't be so nearsighted that you've forgotten the purpose of the Christian life. You've forgotten the point of everything. Godliness is necessary to avoid gospel amnesia. I mean, I don't ever want to get to the point where the, the greatest reality in the universe is dead to me. Do you? Do you? I don't want to get to that point. I don't want to get to that point where I can no longer, where I no longer shed tears, where I can no longer feel joy, where I can no, where it's almost like old hat. And the way that we don't get that way is that we, 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 we pursue godliness. We pursue righteousness. We let the gospel's work have its intended effect. And what is that intended effect? Titus chapter two. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The gospel teaches us to do that. Teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. That's the, the point of the gospel. Purification, zeal toward a, a new objective, a new goal. And so when we're doing that, don't you think we're going to be filled with this? Absolutely. So godliness is necessary to avoid spiritual amnesia. Number three, godliness is necessary for the confirmation of our calling and election. For the confirmation 
of our calling and election, or I could say it this way, for the assurance of our salvation. For the assurance of our salvation. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. So he just, he just underscores that make every effort again, doesn't he? He just says, look, let this make you more diligent, more, imper- more purposeful. I mean, the goal of this sermon is that you would get up out of this seat saying, yep, more diligence, more diligence, more diligence. That's the point. That's the point. And you remember these realities and they say, okay, okay, okay. More diligence, more diligence. I, I don't want to be gospel. I don't want to have gospel forgetfulness. I don't want to, I don't want to have an unfruitful, ineffective life. I want to confirm my election and call. I'm going to give myself to this, uh, to a renewed pursuit, a renewed intense pursuit of Christ-likeness and godliness. So be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Now, real quick definitions of calling and election. I think these words are very important. They're critical words in the Bible. They're used all over the New Testament. What is calling? When he says to make your calling. There is, there, there's really two types of calling in the Bible. Calling all, the main context of the word call is salvation context. There's a, what we call a general call and an effectual call. A general call is the call that Jesus had when he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the general call. That's issuing a public proclamation to come to Jesus. But the only people who receive that and obey it are those who have an effectual call. That is a divine summons in their heart that says, yes, I want it, which is authored by God, and they move. And they come to Jesus and they obtain rest for their souls. And he's saying, you want to know if that's happened to you? You want to know if that's happened to you? Pursue godliness. You can know it's happened to you. (laughs) If you're pursuing godliness because of these realities, there are a lot of people that think Christianity is just about being nice and pursuing niceness and being moral, who have all kinds of reasons for doing that that are not Christian. In fact, the only difference outside of Christ between nice people and nasty people is the respectability of their sins. That's it. That's it. So we're not talking about just becoming nicer. We're talking about becoming newer. We're talking about being transformed from the inside out. Our character being substantially changed and progressing more and more into the image of Christ. So that's the call of God, the divine summons to a relationship with him. What's election? Election is God's choice. Election is God's choice of individuals for salvation. It's his sovereign determination to save. And so sometimes people wonder, am I one of the called? Am I one of the elect? And Peter gives us the formula to figure that out right here. He says, you want to know if you're elect? You want to know if you're called? You want to make that sure? Be diligent, pursue godliness. Now, that's one way we can pursue assurance. That's the, one that, the way that Peter says. That's not the only way we pursue assurance. There's an objective way we pursue assurance, and there's a subjective way we pursue assurance. The objective way of pursuing assurance is, Jesus died. I believe it. 
I don't care how I feel. I believe it. And that's, that's, a, that's a subjective way, of, that's an objective way of assurance. And that's a biblical way to pursue assurance. There's another biblical way to pursue assurance, which is equally important, which is subjectively looking in. Now I realize this. I've been a Christian long, long before I was a pastor. And so I get this real, really, really clearly. Some of us look too much at ourselves and too little at Jesus. And we're looking for assurance in the wrong places. We spend too much time. Is it there? Is it there? Is it there? Is it there? Am I growing? Am I growing? I'm growing. I must not be a Christian. I must not be called. I must not be elect. That, that's, a, that's an extreme. There's the other extreme of, well, Jesus died for sins. I got baptized. All's good. Haven't changed in 10 years. No substantial growth in godliness. No warfare on my sin, but I'm good. See, that's the other extreme to avoid. Those who only look at themselves and those who never look at themselves. And Peter's saying, avoid both of those. Avoid both of those extremes. Do a healthy spiritual inventory. Ask yourself, are these qualities there? And do I have a passion to pursue them? In that case, be assured of your calling and election. Be assured because only called and only elect people care about that stuff. That's the only, only called and elect people care about that stuff. Nobody, nobody who's not called or elect cares about godliness. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> you know that. So if you're called and you're elect and you want to be assured of that with gratefulness to God and faith in the gospel, pursue the virtues that Peter lays out here. And God will confirm his choice of you. There's simply no substitute. If you would know that you belong to God, know that your objective obedience is the foundation for your subjective assurance. Your objective obedience, sorry, your objective obedience is the foundation for your subjective assurance. He says, you wanna know if you're called an elect, look at your life. So that's why godliness is necessary. It's necessary for assurance. And some of you struggle with assurance. Some of you may be younger Christians. You think you're a Christian. You don't know if you're a Christian. Some of you may be older Christians and wonder if you're a Christian or not. And you struggle with assurance. And I would say, have you done due diligence here? Have you done due diligence here? Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've kind of done too much of this, looking at yourself and introspection, and you need to direct your gaze more out to Jesus and the glories of the cross. But both are necessary because both are intended to work together. We're to gaze outward, we're to be caught up in that, believe that, love that, and be so enamored with that that it actually changes the way we behave and respond to our sin in repentance and faith. So that's why godliness is necessary. Number four, godliness is necessary for protection from apostasy from protection from apostasy. He says in verse 10, therefore brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure for if you practice these qualities, you will never, say it church, fall, fall. Now, what does that mean? Well, I believe it refers to apostasy. It does, not remain, it does not mean fall into sin. It does not mean sin. 
Sometimes the word fall can be used. We talk like that, you know, I fell into sin or, um, but that's not what it's talking about here. The word fall here is used, I believe, the same way that Jude uses it for stumble. That is Jude 24. You remember that great benediction? We sing it sometimes. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling. That is from abandoning God and walking away from the faith. That's what apostasy means. If you're wondering what that word means, apostasy, it means walking away from God, abandoning the church, giving up on your faith, going back to the world. That's what it means. So Peter says here that if you practice these qualities, if you make the pursuit of godliness a priority in your life, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about ever falling away from God. I mean, brothers and sisters, how do you know you won't be walking with God in five years? Really? How do we know? How do we know what the devil might throw at us? What deception might come our way? What sort of trial we might come under that we might grow bitter toward God? I mean, there, there's, a, there's, a tr- there's a cloud of witnesses behind us of faithfulness, yes, but there's also another cloud of witnesses of Demas in love with this present world, walked away. So how do we know we're not gonna be among those? You say, well, because God promised it. God said I'd never stumble. Jude 24 says. You know what Jude says three verses earlier though? Keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, the means by which we are preserved, the means by which we are kept from apostasy is we take stuff like this seriously. We read texts like that and we don't say, ah, once saved, always saved. We read texts like that and we say, oh, he's serious. If we don't practice this, if I don't, if I don't make godliness a priority in my life, pursuing righteousness, conforming my life to the virtues that are talked about in verses five through seven, I might abandon God. I mean, Lance Armstrong didn't get where he was because he made one bad choice. It was day after day, deception after deception, cover up after cover up, lie after lie, cheat after cheat. And now he's trying to cover his tracks and, you know, go to America's prophetess, Oprah, and get his absolution and, you know. Um, But And I'm not demeaning Lance. I'm sorry for him. I feel sorry for him. I feel bad for him. But the the point of my illustration is there was, there was, he was not in pursuit of a certain, he was in pursuit of a certain quality of life which led to a certain result. And if we think we can be cavalier about our pursuit of righteousness and godliness and somehow think we're gonna make it to heaven, we gotta, we're, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we have to make the pursuit of holiness a priority. Let me say it this way. If you make godliness optional, you make apostasy inevitable. If you make godliness optional, you make apostasy inevitable. So you have your choice. And I pray and I trust God's spirit enough that you like me hear that and say, 
Thank you, God. That's a faithful warning. That is a faithful, loving father telling me, son, I love you. Your sin will kill you. Fight it with all your might. I've given you everything you need. That's a faithful father. And I'll be with you and I'll forgive you in your struggle and I'll empower you and we'll make progress together. That's your father. But he issues a stern, stern warning. Son, don't touch that stove. Don't mess with that. Finally, making good time here. I'm encouraged. (laughs) Godliness is necessary, and this is fifth and final, for a rich welcome into heaven. A rich welcome into heaven. Notice verse 11. For in this way, in this way, ooh, those words are important. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, what encouraging words those are. An abundant, lavish, rich welcome will be provided for those whose Christian lives are marked by fruitfulness and faithfulness and diligence and imperfect sinful obedience in this life. Oh, if we could ask Beverly Golly and Carolyn Degman what their welcome was like. And, and if you want to know if they were faithful or not, ask Jim and Mike. Ask them a question. Tell me about your mom. What evidence of these kind of qualities did you see in them? And they'll, they'll have a number of them, I'm sure. Because those ladies, by grace and by a life of grace-enabled faithfulness and obedience to their last day, received a rich provision and welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I can think of no higher or no better motivation for godliness than that. Than the fact that in the end, when all is said and done, and when I die or Jesus comes back, if these virtues are in me and have been increasing in me, I will find an interest in, entrance in heaven that is richly provided for. That is richly provided for. Now, question. Pastor Mark, that sounds like you're saying salvation by works. That sounds like you're saying we get to heaven because we were righteous and godly. Isn't that what you said? You said godliness is necessary for a rich entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I thought believing in Jesus gets us into heaven. That's what I thought. So what do you make of that? Here's how I would respond. People cannot enter heaven without living in a godly way, not because of salvation by works, but because salvation always comes with works. That's why. It's not that the foundation of our forgiveness and the foundation of our acceptance with God and the reason why God receives us into heaven is because of our godliness. Rather, 
It is because the gospel has been demonstrated to be believed in our lives. That's why. Because God, God, we say we believe the gospel. And God says, if you believe it, faith without works is dead. So what he's looking for is not perfection and not that, you know, great, you've got this much godliness that causes you to enter heaven. That makes me, makes you acceptable to me. No, what he's saying is, I see that what my son did changed you. I see that you believe the gospel. You believe the gospel. I see it. I see that you believe the gospel. That's what it is. It's not, it's not, oh, I see the, I see uh, your works. I see your works. And that there, see, that's the reason I accept you. You're a good person. Come on in. No, he looks and he says, oh, I see that you've lived in this way. You've lived in the second Peter one way. You have entrusted your soul and yourself to Jesus Christ. You have recognized that in and of yourself, you could never be godly. You could never be godly. And you've said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And you've believed in Jesus and you've repented of your sin. And you go on believing in Jesus and repenting of your sin. And God's grace and peace has been multiplied to you. And his divine power has granted to you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. You have, through, you have obtained that power and you have worked it out in your life. You've believed those great and precious promises. You've believed them. And as a result, you've become a partaker of the divine nature. You've escaped the corruption in the world caused by lust. You've made every effort to pursue these seven virtues. You've not been nearsighted or blind. You've been fruitful and faithful. And you've been diligent. And you made it here because you never fell. You look like a Christian. That's, that's, see, when we try to interpret verses in isolation from context, we can make all kinds of bad doctrinal decisions. We just start saying stuff and making inferences about things that aren't true. But what we see here is there is no way if you read this context that you could understand what Peter's saying is salvation by works here. It's not. But it is salvation with works. It is salvation that has been demonstrated in a godly life. And that is what we believe, and that is what scripture teaches. So why is godliness necessary then? It's necessary for fruitfulness and effectiveness in life. It's necessary to avoid gospel amnesia. It's necessary for the confirmation of our calling and election. It's necessary for protection from apostasy. It's necessary for entrance into heaven. Well, receive the truth drops brothers and sisters, as I received them this week in my soul. And don't try to squint them and get them out of your eye as fast as possible, but let it have its intended effect, soaking in our souls, giving us a joyful seriousness about our walk with the Lord, because that's what God desires. He doesn't desire us to be paralyzed by this. He desires for us to be liberated and protected by this. This is a word of protection. This is a word of encouraging warning. And I pray that we would receive it as such. So let's pray together. Father, we, we pause this morning to thank you for your gracious care for us that you have demonstrated through your word this morning. Oh, how you love us. You have told us 
very clearly the way that leads to life. You have set before us the path of life. You have said, this is the way, walk in it. And we ask that by your grace, we would respond with humility, recognizing that we have been forgiven of our former sins and the ways in which we have blown it up till now can be wiped away. We can be renewed this morning. Perhaps some of us are here this morning who have never called upon the name of the Lord, who are trying to be godly without God. Would you please help them this morning to not worry about becoming a nice person, but worry about becoming a new person. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.